0: Grace, peace, and joy be unto you from God the Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. We're continuing in our Building a Culture series with our final week focusing on the idea that all means all. And it's certainly a great week to make the connection once again to the ideals of our nation and our convictions as a congregation. Our nation was founded on principles of liberty freedom from the oppression of a monarchy. And the Declaration of Independence makes the case for why we would take such dramatic step to establish a new independent nation. It begins with a summary statement of the abuse of power, stating, but when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, It is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. And it then goes on to list the abuses of the monarchy. But of course, most importantly for our contemporary experience, the Declaration also sets forth the ideal of a nation for which we should strive by saying, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Here at Prince of Peace, we say that all means all, which means that acceptance, grace, and dignity are extended for every human life. Both the Declaration of Independence and our statement as a congregation are inspired by biblical principles brought forward in places like Paul's letter to the Galatians that we've been reading for these last few weeks. Today we encounter Paul's final plea to the believers in Galatia that whenever we have an opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those in our family of faith. Paul goes on to say that even the distinction between the uncircumcised and the circumcised, at the time, a huge distinction between the Jewish believers and the Gentiles, even this example of something that could divide us, in fact, is nothing, because in Christ we are a new creation, and being a new creation in Christ is what unites us. And this, he says, is everything. Sadly, Jefferson could never consume, can, can, uh, never could conceive of equal rights for women. He did recognize the evil of slavery on a free society, but he never found his way to understanding how that could be realized then in his time. But he unleashed an ideal in the Declaration of Independence that went beyond his imagination. The ideal was bigger than Jefferson. Paired with the gospel of Jesus, it became more potent over time. Over time, this ideal would lead to the abolishment of slavery and rights for women to participate in the democratic process. It inspired people like Mary Church Terrell to write these words about equality for women in 1915. Mary Church Terrell was an African-American woman who was frustrated by African-American men that stood in the way of inclusion of women at that time. She wrote, what could be more absurd and ridiculous than one group of individuals who are trying to throw off the yoke of oppression themselves so as to get relief from conditions which handicap and injure them, should favor laws and customs which impede the progress of another unfortunate group and hinder them in every conceivable way. Freedom for the good of all an ideal for our nation, an ideal that's also found in the scriptures, an ideal with very practical implications for peace and prosperity for a nation. When we see unrest in a nation, it's often because of disturbances in our understanding of freedom for the good of all in equality, both in terms of those working for equality and those that want to maintain current systems that benefit them. The challenge is often sorting out the difference between real inequality versus the manipulation of ideas to create a perceived inequality among certain groups of people. It's a precious balance. In the relationship between the nation and the church, the church has been an important voice from the outside looking in to call nations to live up to their ideals, The civil rights movement being a preeminent example here in our country of what this looks like, but the church must also be careful in how it uses this power to influence the culture. Is the church using its influence to truly lift up the plight of the afflicted for the good and equality of all, or is it contributing to the continued subjugation of some people for the sake of others in power? Unfortunately, history is riddled with examples of this as well. So we are continually called to discern together what looks like the ethic of love and justice, peace for all as taught by Jesus. And this should govern our advocacy as the church for the sake of peace in our nation and in the world. This is one of the ways in which we build a culture where all means all and how we go about this work makes all the difference in the world. We work for peace and equality through the humble and generous spirit of Jesus. And we check ourselves to make sure that we do not become the tyrants that we are forsaking, that use the power of empire to get to their way. I think we need to be very clear about the nature of the church of Jesus Christ, the way of Jesus does not seek power for some. The way of Jesus is the manifestation of the power of equality for all. And Jesus recognized the danger of not tending to this work in peace. In our Gospel lesson for today, we skip over a section in the middle of the chapter that when Jesus sends off the disciples out with this message of peace, he says that it will be worse for those in Sodom that was destroyed than for those who do not receive this gift of peace. The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, I think, properly puts this warning from Jesus in the context of empire. He says Jesus sees a simmering rebellion springing up around him among the Jewish Jewish people, and it's why they are so desperate for him to be this military Messiah. Lead us like David in battle to victory. But Jesus sees the whole picture and gives them the warning, go toe-to-toe with Rome, meeting violence with violence, and your whole city will be destroyed. Jesus brings the warning because he is sending out the disciples with a different culture to offer as a gift to a violent world. Jesus multiplies himself into the 70 that are sent out in peace into the community. He sends them out in peace. He sends them out with a vision of a world restored with grace and peace for all. A vision that he knows can come to fruition by the power of the Spirit because of the cosmic transformation that will come in his victory over violence and death on the cross. And this is precisely the work that his disciples in the early church set out to do as cultural architects going into every community and sharing an alternative vision for what reality can be in Jesus' name. And it works to the point that the vision does overtake the empire. The Constantinian era begins, and it's an absolutely amazing feat that it can happen at the time, and it does, but the challenge then shifts to be able to distinguish between God's kingdom and empire. And we have slipped into greater and greater disrepair to the point where it's time to distinguish ourselves from empire once again. The next generation is abandoning the church, not because it lacks spirituality, but because they're longing for a church provide a vision for our culture that is worthy of the grace and beauty of what God has done and continues to do in the world in Jesus. So my prayer on this 4th of July weekend is that we celebrate the birth of our country. We also hear the warning of Jesus about choosing anything other than His beautiful way of peace and reconciliation as we live together in community. One of my favorite contemporary prophetic pastors, Brian Zand, frames it this way. He says, instead of contributing to the hateful rhetoric of our ugly age, could the church be a shelter from the storm? Instead of a furrowed brow of disapproval, a clenched fist of anger, a wagging finger of condemnation, could the church present to the world a compassionate countenance of grace? Instead of being sucked into the destructive dualism of reactive people, could the church become a contemplative people seeking to hold all things together in the reconciling love of Christ? Instead of ratcheting up culture war polemics, could the church speak the first words of the risen Christ, peace be with you? If so, we can enact the beauty of Christ in a way that will be conspicuous in an ugly age. And if not, well, I don't want to think about what happens to the church if it clings to ugliness, he says. So let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us make Christianity beautiful again. This is the week when we celebrate the birth of our great nation and the principles of liberty and freedom that are hallmarks of our democracy. But as we celebrate these things, also hear the challenge inherent with our celebration, that our stewardship of these gifts and our imagination for how we face our struggles and our brokenness will be both bold and courageous, yet still reflect the beautiful ways of the Prince of Peace.